HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food, Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, back after a nice long break, I have to say. Um, and we're going to jump right into, um, actually, <laughs> we're going to jump right back in uh, with an author I have had on the show before. Her name is Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She served as senior attorney of Waterkeeper for Waterkeeper Alliance, running their campaign to reform the concentrated production of livestock and poultry. And in recent years, she has gained a national reputation as an advocate for sustainable food production and improved farm animal welfare. She is the author of Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, and the Atlantic Online. And today we're going to discuss the revised and expanded edition of Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat, uh, published by Chelsea Green just this past summer. Um, and she was on, you know, seven years ago, I was reviewing, folks, because that's how long I've been doing this. Uh, I was reviewing um, our correspondence over the decade. And uh, her last appearance was with me, I think, on uh, either 20. 2017 or 2014, one of those two was for defending beef. So anyway, welcome um, so much, Nicoletta. So nice to it's so nice to hear your voice. I haven't seen you in a long time. I haven't been making the scene at any of those conferences that yeah, we would usually <laughs> run into each other at. So right. it's been a while. Everybody well, okay? Thanks for having me. Yes, we're doing well. Thank you. Good. That's great. So let's talk, uh, let's start first of all with what what prompted you to revise and update uh, Defending Beef? What new material uh, came to your attention that, that caused you to do this? Well, you know, it's just there's so much happening in this space right now around meat. You know, people are talking about it, they're thinking about it, they're researching more. And so actually, there's a great deal more research out now about a lot of the topics that I covered in the original version of the book, uh, especially on the climate change side, the carbon yeah. sequestration, the methane, and then on the health side as well. You know, there's more and more discussion about you know, is processed food the problem in our, you know, in our diet that's causing health problems? Is is meat the problem, et cetera? So I, I wanted to incorporate all that new research. I've been thinking about it a lot. And then the publisher actually approached me and said, would you be willing to do a new edition? And I jumped at the chance. I said, absolutely. 
And I said, I can do it in a few months. And then I started working on it. And I said, actually, I need a year. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because it was a lot. It was a lot that I wanted to change. I was surprised how much I wanted to change because I really liked the original book. But I realized that, you know, stuff has changed and my perspective has changed. So I put a lot of new research in it, but I also did a lot more to it. It's, It's really quite a new book. It is, I thought so. Yes, I definitely thought so. I was, I, you know, and I really enjoyed it very much. Um, learned Thank a you. lot from it, as always. Um, so um, one of the things that you talk a lot about is um, using grazing as a means to sequester carbon. And that, of course, is a fairly new, um, all of this regenerative agriculture and grazing and all of that stuff, that's definitely fairly new, um, certainly new to the average lay consumer, as it were. Um, so t- tell us why that works. Why why does grazing work so well to sequester carbon from the atmosphere? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that we don't really know. I mean, the science is evolving and rapidly, there's more and more of it. But even the rangeland scientists I've discussed this with will say, you know, we don't fully understand everything that's happening here. But what was discovered around the world again and again is that where you had grazing animals, or let's say you remove them. This was often studied in situations around the world where grazing animals were removed. And a lot of times they were removed because they were believed to be causing ecological damage. Uh And then what was found was that there was actually degradation, especially of the soils, but really the whole ecosystem. There's kind of a cascading effect. You had a decline in the healthfulness of the soil, and then you had less diverse vegetation, less diverse insect populations, less diverse larger animal populations. And so it was a sort of a surprising effect that got documented over and over again around the world. But basically, uh, and so and so, and this is an area where there, you know, there's a lot new, a lot of new research, and some of the new research is in the new book. Um, Michigan State, for example, has done a wonderful job. Um, really uh, carefully documenting the impact of grazing on soil and carbon in soils. And what they Mm -hmm. basically have found is that where you have well-managed grazing, uh, and so this was actually proven in field tests. This is not just a theoretical uh, idea that they had. They showed in field tests, it's an agricultural school, has a long history of agricultural research. They showed that where you had good grazing practices, you actually got so much additional carbon put into the soil that it fully offset any carbon emissions, including emissions in the form of methane. And so this is the kind of research that, you know, is important and is, you know, really affecting the conversation, should be affecting the conversation. And you had a smaller scale kind of analysis done at White White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia, where they simply did an environmental audit using an independent third-party scientific auditor that does that kind of thing. And they looked at everything they were producing, you know, all the crops, all of the animals. And the really interesting thing about that analysis and that environmental audit was that they found that the, the most carbon beneficial product they were raising was their beef. Amazing. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that really shocks people because people always think, oh, well, you know, I can eat my vegan diet or my, you know, low meat diet and that's really good for the planet. Well, what's fascinating, these these kinds of studies are kind of flipping all of that on, on its head because they're showing beef has the pr- potential to be actually more than carbon neutral. It can be carbon negative. And there are very few other foods that could probably make that claim. So basically, when you talk about the mechanism, the question you asked me, um, you have obviously the energy coming from the sunlight and the plant is 
absorbing that energy from the sunlight and is right. taking in the process of that is taking carbon dioxide in its own processes for its own you know metabolism basically it's taking carbon dioxide into you know the plant, plant is absorbing the carbon that way and that's actually being used as a bartering that carbon that the plant gets from the atmosphere is actually used by the plant to barter with the soil i mean it's funny to think about these tiny little economies happening below ground and out of sight it for is. most people uh, but they're they're actually getting the plants are getting the nutrients that they need from the soil by providing carbon to the soil. And it's actually been uh -huh. shown by USDA, USDA soil scientists like Christine Nichols, who used to be at USDA at the time that they were doing this research, that this is kind of a barter system. And she and another soil scientist at USDA were the ones who discovered this substance called glomalin, which is a, um, a, a, a kind of a substance that coats the roots and all of the root filaments that go out from the plant into the soil that actually facilitate this type of exchange. So she uh -huh. calls it a bartering process and a kind of a subterranean economy that's happening. So this is the kind of research that is quite new. And yes. even though people have understood for a long time that there's a connection, obviously, between photosynthesis and soil health and so forth, the, the, the specifics of it were not really understood, and we're just beginning to understand it now. So the reason why grazing matters in that, and there are lots of different reasons, but one of the reasons is because the, the action of the animal, you know, sort of the animal impact, um, is in multiple different parts. When you, when you um, clip and prune through the, with the mouth, you sort of trigger uh, the growth, for one thing, sure. and you also allow more diversity of types of vegetation to occur in an ecosystem because the later sprouting uh, plants will then have more access to sunlight that doesn't filter through if you have just one dominant plant that start you know sprouts early right and that more diverse uh, uh, vegetative growth is better at at sequestering carbon. It's also the case that the um, the urine and the manure not only add uh, nutrients, everybody's known that for a long time, you know, things like right. nitrogen and phosphorus, but they add moisture and they also add, and this is really important, bacteria that are beneficial to that whole biological process that happens in the soils. And, um, and then there's even um, really good evidence that the hooves of the animals press uh, seeds and uh, plant matter into the soil and that that helps germination of seeds and that actually helps feed the soil with that plant matter. So it's this kind of a multiple, uh, you know, different um, types of impacts um, that, you know, the, the Savory Institute calls the animal impacts. That's a term I really like. Yep. And all of these different effects kind of collectively uh, supercharge the uh, the sort of microscopic life of the soils. And also not just the microscopic, the, the macro <laughs> life as well, things like earthworms and um, insects that are below ground. All of sure. this is better off when you have grazing. And, and I have to say, I emphasize over and over again in all my writings and speaking that we're talking about well-managed grazing. But yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, but even yeah. poorly managed grazing is better than none. So that's the really oh, interesting thing. Really? So, that is yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, you know, I argue, you know, and, and the Savory Institute is doing this all over the world, and, and lots of other folks are saying this, we need to do a better job of managing grazing. And you get tremendous benefits when you focus on well-managed grazing. But still, all grazing 
has some beneficial effects, even bad mm-hmm. grazing. But you know, but there's a huge spectrum of opportunity there. And so I don't even like, you know, a lot of my background is as an environmental lawyer and I was in environmental groups for a long time. And they used to always talk about mitigation of, you know, the harmful effects of, you know, industry, for example. And it's also talked about with agriculture and animal agriculture. And a lot of times when we talk about meat and animal agriculture, there's a discussion about mitigation. And what I say with beef and with all the grazing animals Actually, it's true of all the animals, but my focus right now is the grazing animals. Sure. When you when you have well managed grazing animals, you don't you're not even thinking about mitigation. You're talking about opportunities because they provide tremendous ecosystem services of the types I was just describing, right. and they provide more and more of it depending on how well managed they are. Now, saying that, like if we were to take, I mean, most okay. Let's start with the fact that, and this is something I know that most people who think about industrialized agriculture don't realize probably, and you make this point in your book, and that is that almost all cattle, with maybe the exception of dairy cattle, but all beef cattle, spend most of their lives outside grazing, right? Yes, absolutely. And then later, when they're towards the end of their lifespan, and we could talk about when that is, um, towards the end, when they're getting ready to be slaughtered, they're sent to a feedlot where they're fattened up on grain, usually corn, sometimes a mix of corn and other legumes, et cetera. Um, but they're there for about two or three months and they put on a lot of muscle there and they get fed. That's when they get their big dose of like antibiotics and beta agonists, et cetera. Another topic we're going to cover. Um, uh, and, the, and then they and they and they muscle up really hard. So most people don't realize that we already graze cattle for most of the time. I guess that's my point here. And so you're what you're talking about is something that's already in place. All we have to do is better manage the grazing. Is that is that sort of your argument? Is that if yeah. we're well, you know we could in fact scale up our beef production if we wanted to, as long as we manage the grazing in a more uh, sort of earth friendly way. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of points to touch on that you just mentioned. One is just just sort of like how much beef could be produced because mm-hmm. there's a whole argument out there that, well, this whole feedlot system has evolved and this grain feeding has evolved in order to produce more beef. And if we were to, you know, move back toward grass, uh, we would have to dramatically reduce the quantity. Well, that's just not true. You know, and I've discussed this with right. countless, you know, sort of economic uh, um, agricultural economists and people at the Safer Institute who, you know, focus on the land and what's available and how it can be grazed. And their work shows, a lot of work um, shows, but in particular, the Savory Institute did a really interesting analysis about this. They showed that if you um, manage well, you have so much more moisture in the soil and so much more vegetation growing on your land that you actually dramatically improve, you know, increase your productivity on that land and, and how uh-huh. much meat you can produce is dramatically increased. So when they did an analysis of how much land was available in the United States to take cattle and basically put them on grass as opposed to going into feedlots, they found that there was far more than enough land to do that. They said um, they they actually calculated there was about a 30% surplus of how much land you would need. And that's because you produce so much more beef per acre, basically, Uh when you do these well-managed grazing practices. And by the way, these are very site-specific. You know, everything... um, 
there's no one size fits all approach. It's really, uh, even, even like on our ranch, I talked about this a little bit in the book, um, from one part of the ranch to the other is, you know, tremendously different. And you need to manage that differently according to the, you know, to the year and to the circumstances, to your rainfall, you know, whatever, lots of different factors will affect how you need to manage it. And that's that holistic management concept. You're basically trying to look at your uh, your circumstances holistically and and um, from day to day, from year to year, and continually adapting and evaluating. In fact, some people use the term adaptive management grazing. And so um, I think those are important ideas out there. But yeah, the whole idea that you, you, um, you need the feedlots, I think is um, questionable. And I don't argue we should immediately abolish them, but I'm arguing, um, you know, towards that we move towards more grass and that we have the potential to do a huge amount more grass than we are doing now. Right. That was really what I was trying to get at is that, I mean, we could, uh, you know, we we could, in fact, get rid of the whole feedlot concept. You know, not that a well-managed feedlot is a terrible thing. I mean, you know, even you say in your book, like, and I've been to some very well-managed feedlots myself and the cattle are not unhappy. You exactly. know, they, I mean, they like being together. They're herd animals. You know, it's like they don't really mind that. And there are rules about how much space each animal has to have. Right? Yeah, it's, it's a much so. less having myself having been to, you know, poultry operations and pork operations and yeah. large confinement dairies. I mean, it is by far the least troubling part of the animal food system. You know, no but doubt. that being said, you know, and I especially um, have been to some smaller scale uh, feedlots where there were just a couple thousand cattle there as opposed to the really large ones that will have 50 or 100,000. And right. those smaller ones can be very well managed and, you know, have have you know, the lives of the animals are very high quality. I mean, there's really nothing terribly objectionable about it. But that being said, I think both from an, um, an environmental and an animal welfare and a human nutrition standpoint, we really want to move towards grass. So, you right. know, my argument is we need to be heading in that direction, basically. Right, because because actually, I mean, the, the, the larger point is, is that we could grow a lot less corn and soy if we were not feeding cattle uh, in feedlots. Right. Exactly. So right there, right there, you're getting rid of a whole swath, a tranche of this huge monocrop, monolithic uh, agricultural model that we have. I mean, we're exactly. still stuck and with the ethanol thing, but you know, yeah, yeah. And then, right, exactly. I mean, there's so much wrong with you know, sort of large scale animal agriculture the way it's practiced uh, today, and there's so much wrong with large scale plant agriculture and crop agriculture. You know, yeah. the way it's um, the way it's practiced, and there was a fantastic fantastic um, essay a few years ago that was in the Journal of Soil and Water uh, Conservation <laughs> that was written by, you know, a, a, a number of, you know, rangeland and um, uh, sustainable farming experts. And they actually argued that we should uh, move t- away from, you know, cro- the, the large scale crop production of the upper Midwest you know, corn and soy, especially, yeah. and have grazing animals there in those places instead for the ecological benefits. Right, right. Very interesting. And, you know, it, and, and that stirred a lot of, um, that turned a lot of heads because they were actually, they calculated that the um, the overall effect on climate change would be a positive effect if you did mm-hmm. that. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to jump ahead. I want to talk about water and then we have to take a quick break and, you know, we've, 
we're, we're already like running out of time. And I'm like halfway through this outline. <laughs> um, this is what happens to me because we go, I go off on these tangents. It's really, it's entirely my fault. But I want to talk about the, the statistics of water because you made a, a lot of really good points about that. And many people use water as the cudgel with which to beat up meat eaters. And, you know, that may be very true. That is certainly a huge problem in uh, confinement for hogs and chickens, obviously less so for cattle. But but cattle are not, as you point out, not using as much water as is claimed. So I want you to go through some of that. Yeah, well, I think it's important to note that my background is specifically in water. Right. My, um, my background as an environmental lawyer was in... Uh, for both organizations that I worked for was focused on water quality protection. So I, in the book, Defending Beef, I talk both about quantity and quality. Yeah. And um, I make a a very detailed argument about why when you have especially well-managed grazing, you actually have better uh, water protection. The water resources are protected by that vegetative cover that grazing uh, enhances. So that's an important point. But on the quantity side, The main point is that there are water-intensive foods and there are less water-intensive foods. And for example, the potato is uh, fairly less water-intensive. You can dry farm potatoes, basically, in a Mm -hmm. lot of places, and there's not very much water there, and they do okay. But then there are a lot of foods that we commonly eat that are fairly water-intensive. So those would include things like almonds, sugar, rice, Corn, soy. Yeah, it depends on how you grow it, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are and very then, water intensive and, crops. And yeah, beef and beef is actually comparable to a lot of those other foods that we eat. Uh-huh. So I make a, I go through, the, you know, the detailed science of it in the book, but about um, uh, uh, the amount of water that's used to produce a, a pound of rice is about the same as a pound of beef. So that's kind of the key bottom line point. And the reason for that is the vast majority of the water that's actually in beef, even beef that's finished in a feedlot, and even if it's fed irrigated crops, which it usually isn't, the vast majority of the crops fed to beef cattle are not irrigated. But if even if it's kind of like the mainstream feedlot beef of the United States and might include some irrigated crops in it, uh, the vast majority of the water is actually water that was contained in the vegetation that they were grazing. So it's basically right. rainfall, and that's a different kind of water. There's there's something called blue water. There's something called green water. And the green water is the water that's contained in the vegetation that they're grazing. So people, when they hear these statistics about the water in beef, they think it's all being, you know, given to the animals directly or it's being um, irrigated onto the crops that they're consuming. That's not actually true. When those numbers are calculated, the vast majority, something like 95% of the water is actually from the grass that they're eating. Uh-huh. So I think that's, so what UC Davis um, Agriculture School says is basically that's not appropriate to include that in in the calculations. And when they did that, they found that beef was actually very much in line with a lot of other foods that we commonly eat as far as how much water it uses. Very interesting. We got to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Nicolette Hahn-Nyman talking about defending beef. Um, And we're going to start talking about lab meat in a second. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, so now <laughs> let's talk about lab meat because uh, how much water do they use growing all that pea protein and whatnot? I mean, you know, I, you can tell I don't really like this whole, I don't, I don't like these fake meats. I don't, I don't think it's a great idea. I don't think it's the direction we should be going in. I think it's a giant distraction and somebody is making bank on this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And oh, so, I uh, agree you with know, you so I, yeah. Uh, I have, uh, you know, for a while I was sort of entranced by the idea, but then I, when I started researching, you know, reading up on what goes into creating the plant-based meat, especially, um, I was just like, you know, this is, this is, this is not going to be better. Like from an ecological standpoint, this is not going to improve our, you know, ability to, you know, conserve water or, uh, you know, plant better crops or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, this is using a lot of energy of various types. And and then also, I, I don't know anything about culturing meat. You'll have to fill me in on that. But but let's talk a little bit about the water use and how these, how the inputs uh, of these categories uh, compare with that of raising beef. I'm not going to talk about pork and chicken because we know that's bad. But, yeah, uh, but well, beef especially seems very benign to me compar- comparatively. I, I think a couple of points should be made about the about the whole faux meat idea. One is, as you mentioned, there's a whole um, kind of a bunch of money that's come into it from the high tech sector and also from the meat industry itself. Oh yeah, they've now you know realized this as an opportunity, and a lot of the uh, the new products that are coming out and the new companies and the new labels are actually from the meat industry itself because they want to capture that part of the market, you know, the food market that's there. Sure. And basically, they see this as an opportunity to uh, actually perhaps even increase their profits because you take very uh, inexpensive ingredients for the most part, things like soy and potato and wheat, and you turn it into you know this highly processed food product and charge a lot of money for it. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's a lot of money, you know, it's, the profit is in the processing, you know, and they are seeing it as a way to make a lot of money. And what what I find particularly troubling about it is that I'm increasingly persuaded that the real health problem that we're facing in the industrialized world is this consumption of processed foods. And there was this um, Journal of American Medical Association paper that just came out that said 
for children between the ages of 2 to 19 in the United States today, about two-thirds of their calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. Yeah, I saw I mean, that. That's Very just, scary. It's just shocking, mm-hmm. right? We kind yeah. of know that there's a lot of processed food out there, but that was an, a stunning statistic. Um, and I think we know that those foods obviously contain more sugar, more salt, more all kinds of other ingredients that we don't even know what they are, that sort of thing. But more and more, I, I've i been really influenced by people like Fred Provenza and his book Nourishment that basically argues that the whole key to good health is eating foods that are sort of biologically active, you know, that contain all these phytochemicals and secondary compounds. And these processed foods contain none of that. So right. that means we're eat, getting more and more calories and more and more of our diet is coming from foods that are essentially biologically dead. So that is a lot of what really bothers me on the ecological side of it. I think there has not yet been a good audit of it. And mm-hmm. that I think it's important to, to consider that because um, people selling these products are continually claiming that it's somehow ecologically more benign than meat production. And from what I know of it, I don't think that's credible at all. And I discuss this, you know, somewhat in the book. And I just think that we don't really have an audit on it. That's the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me that if you're making, I mean, I I can't speak to the cultured meat because I don't really understand the science behind that well enough, but certainly for the plant-based meat and I, you know, I'm not knocking it as like, oh, you should never eat that. But I, I, you know, it's just, if you're going to make the argument that this is better for you and better for the environment, I'm not going to buy that argument because it isn't better for the environment. It's you're, you're monocropping yet another type of, of plant, uh, for which you will undoubtedly be using some sort of, you know, chemical, um, inputs, uh, fertilizer, pesticides, whatever it is you need, uh, herbicides. And then on top of that, you're using plenty of water to grow it. So, yeah. And you're probably killing the soil. And that to me is the key point because I am more and more convinced that what we really have to focus on with the food system is systems that truly create this healthy, biologically active soil that we were talking about before. Yes, absolutely. And when you're doing large-scale monocrop production, that is killing the soil, quite simply, for a lot of different reasons. The plowing is bad. The application of the chemicals is bad. You know, the, the, the whole way it's done is incredibly damaging to soils and is basically killing the world's soils. And we know this. There's a lot of documentation about this now. Yeah. And all of these faux burgers are essentially based on that kind of production system, whereas meat can be done in this incredibly regenerative, biologically helpful way. And yeah. I don't see how you create an industrial pro- food processed product like these faux burgers in a, regen- in a truly regenerative way. They're starting to try to make those claims now, but it's, they're not very credible. Well, I, you know, we, we'll have to see. But as you said, no no major audit exists. But just out of curiosity, and to go back to the processed food issue here for a second, what? how do they stack up uh, nutritionally to beef? Well, there have been some really good uh, articles by nutrition experts on that topic. And basically, you know, they don't contain, first of all, they tend to be very high in salt. They tend to have a lot of different types of, um, you know, genetically modified or other types of uh, sort of um, high tech <laughs> type ingredients in them, and like for example, um, I think it's Impossible. I can't keep track of these guys, but Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, one of them has that fake blood that's a genetically modified product in there to make it look like it bleeds. I mean, it's just yeah, ridiculous. Heme. I think <laughs> it's an iron based, pro, uh, some sort of iron based uh, protein that they're able to derive from a plant. 
Yes, yeah, from, absolutely. From, I yeah. think it's from, well, I want to say beets, but I may be wrong about that. But in any event, they genetically modified it. They created it in a lab in yeah. order to add it. And it uh, you know, so it's even of questionable. It's like a weird concept. Why do you want to, you know, to me, it's like. Like, why are what? you making meat? Uh, why? Yeah, right. I, you and I are what? on the same page with this. It's like, wh- if you're not going to eat meat, why are you going to make something that looks like it's bleeding? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just eat, you know, eat lentils. Eat, you know, eat. Right. I was a vegetarian. I was vegetarian for thirty three years, so I know, I know there's a ton of good stuff you can eat out there if you're not eating meat. But right. why would you eat something that has been created in a lab to perfectly, supposedly, you know, replicate the meat experience? I, I don't. I, right. I, to me, I want to eat real food, and I just think that's what the bottom line objection is for me about yeah. these faux burgers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't, I haven't looked at there. I have tried them. Um, I have tried, uh, impossible burgers and, uh, beyond beef and I didn't find either and, and several iterations by, of different companies. And I didn't find any of them to be hugely objectionable, but neither were they delicious. Yeah. Um, neither That's were they, some, you know, a lot of people. they are not yeah. something I'm go- I'm not going to buy that product yeah. because I do eat meat and, um, you know, not huge amounts of it, but you know, I like it occasionally. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's good and it's good for you. Um, exactly. so anyway, but let's, let's move on along a little bit because, um, I wanted to talk for a second about the greenhouse gas emissions, another big charge, uh, against, uh, especially cattle ranching, you know, back, uh, in the day when I first started doing the show, everybody was whinging about, you know, how uh, beef cattle, you know, fart so much and the methane and the, this and the, that. So, and in that very, which I did read in the very important, uh, FAO report, livestock's long shadow, um, which has its own very long shadow, um, you, uh, report that we how we measure greenhouse gases as they uh, were done in for the livestock long shadow that that whole methodology has changed. So what what changes uh, are you able to document? Because well, so many people responded to that report. You know what I mean? That's yeah, sort of the oh, conventional, it certainly did have a long shadow, the, as you said. Yeah. It became the conventional wisdom about animal agriculture. Um, yeah, so. and I mean, I'd say thankfully, there's been a lot of rethinking of a lot of the types of things that were said and done in there. And even that report itself was updated a few years later by the the same agency. And they said, well, the number is closer to 14%, 14. 14.5%, right. they said. And a lot of that was because the main, almost half of that whole figure that they came up with was from uh, basically the felling of trees and the burning of trees around the world in order to, they said, raise cattle. And I show in in the book in, in some detail why that really is not a fair thing to attribute that to cattle production. Because for, for to just focus on Brazil, for example, in Brazil, you have a lot of still essentially kind of wild lands, and a lot of those are occupied by indigenous people. And I spoke with at length with a couple of uh, Brazilians that are very involved in public issues and have been involved in land issues down in Brazil for many years. And they explained to me that there was a really strong drive to try to gain control over a lot of these lands by large landholders and wealthy you know, corporations from indigenous people. And rather than them trying to expand beef production per se, it's really the beef cattle are kind of a proxy for a way to gain control over the land because the cattle are movable and you can basically clear land, put cattle on it for a period of time and then claim ownership. And their ultimate goal actually is to grow soy on those fields because it's a much more profitable enterprise. 
And so, you know, part of the whole conversation around this, I think, is getting a little more sophisticated. We're starting to say, well, okay, what's actually driving these land use changes? And the, the other part of it that's ironic is that, you know, in the U.S., well, I, I, I delved really deeply over the years into the specific statistics about how much beef is imported from Brazil and especially the areas where the Amazon has been cleared. And essentially, it's very little. It's about one per, one to two percent. And there's almost no soy coming from Brazil to the United States either. So when you're telling Americans that they shouldn't eat beef because of the deforestation of the Amazon, it's just simply an untruthful statement. It's, it, there's no actual connection between those two things. All the, the, America produces a huge amount of soy, and we export a huge amount actually too. And so the soy that's yes. used, even in you know, even when you're feeding it to livestock, that soy is almost all produced domestically. So it's really not accurate. And then, and then as I say, the beef, is, there's very little beef uh, imported into the U.S. We're a huge beef producing company. We export a lot. We import a tiny bit. It's sort of weird how, you know, the economics of it all work and trade well, We works. import quite a but, bit of beef because, uh, I mean, there, there, there wouldn't be the whole uh, controversy around cool that is that is once again spooling through uh, politics right now. Okay, but, but that's I mean, all from actually we 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 actually do not produce uh, uh, import very much beef total. The total amount of uh, red meat that's uh, produced and consumed in the United States about eighty percent of it is domestically produced. But then mm-hmm. when you take that twenty percent and look at where it comes from, you're talking about cool. You're talking about NAFTA and so forth. These things are from Canada, um, from Mexico. And from Australia and New Zealand, those are the countries where we get beef from in the United States. And if you look, and again, I've looked at the stuff in detail, and that's where the beef that is imported comes from. A tiny, tiny percentage comes from all of the developing countries that are actually dealing with deforestation. Mm-hmm. It's almost it's, it's like a it's a statistical zero basically. So it's a, it's a, just a false argument. There really is no actual connection between what you're eating in terms of beef in the U.S. and the deforestation in the rainforest. It's a lie. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, to, to go further and talk a little bit more about um, cool, um, you know, that that is finally getting a hearing once again. Of course, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, it's a country of origin labeling. And uh, during the Obama administration, uh, there was a very brief period when cool the idea of country of origin labeling was enacted and then uh, very quickly shut down uh, by the World Trade Organization, which was uh, on be- sued the United States on behalf of Canada and Mexico. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. uh, as those countries said, um, who is going to buy Mexican or Canadian beef when they really want to be eating American beef? And that's um, and so then these enormous fines were levied and Congress caved in immediately and said, OK, much to the great consternation of of, you know, thousands of cattle ranchers across the United States. And there are two big organizations, RCAF, and I forget who the other one is. Oh, um, Organization for Competitive Markets. Uh, yeah. Both of them uh, have been working tirelessly to revive cool. Um, although it's interesting, Nicolette, you're saying that it's like, you know, it's not really an issue. Why would they think it's such an issue if it's if uh, we're importing such a small fraction of our supply no, from, from those no, countries? No, what I'm saying is, 
it isn't an issue when you're talking about deforestation in oh, the I rainforest. See. I got you. Okay. okay. Because yeah. as we just discussed, Canada and Mexico are the where the vast majority of the imported beef is coming from, and also Australia and New Zealand nowadays. That's that's right. the reason. And lamb a lot more comes from New Zealand and so forth. So there's oh, sure. red meat coming from other countries, but not the areas that are being deforested. That is the key point. And and actually the total amount of uh, beef consumed in the U.S. is the vast majority is grown in the U.S. And I strongly support the idea that we should have honest labeling. I mean, I think trans- transparency is an absolutely core tenant of a, a healthy and sustainable food system. So I be- I support the country of origin labeling 100%. Right, right. What, so what, what would you, because we're going to have to wrap it up in a few minutes, um, what, what would be the most significant steps uh, in your view that could be uh, taken up to dismantle the current animal agricultural system? Would it be like breaking up the monopolies as Biden is claiming he's going to do? Or, you know, where where, where should we go? Country of origin labeling, of course, would be very nice. Um, what else can we do that would make animal ag more, um, let's let's just narrow it down to cattle, <laughs> to well, beef. Well, I just Let, don't we think- don't, with, We can't th- talk this about is, the other ones. This is a huge, you know, obviously, you know, this is a huge issue. And so I really don't think there is a silver bullet solution. I think there are lots of solutions and we need to be working on all of them. And there are, you know, so many different ways to approach this. So I actually think like on the legislative side, for example, yeah. I like the country of origin labeling. I also really believe we should not allow, as the European Union hasn't for a very long time, um, we shouldn't allow the continual feeding of antibiotics. I don't yeah. think that means getting rid of all antibiotics in anim- animal agriculture, because I think they have a place, but it should be very limited and it should be restricted. And that's basically what's happened in California on a state level. But that mm-hmm. should be national law. That's an, an example yeah. of the kind of legislation that would be helpful to let you know mm-hmm. sort of level the playing field. On the, you know, the sort of um, what can an individual do side of the question, I think that we can all as, you know, as sort of voters discuss issues of food and sustainability the way that Tim Bryan was doing in the Democratic primary, you know, with our elected officials and basically let them know that we care about sustainability and a connection between soil and health and, you know, not subsidizing, you know, large monocrop and chemical intensive agriculture. We should we should make our voices known on that question. And then as consumers, we all have the opportunity to support better food and farming with what we purchase, which is obviously something that you, you know, you discuss all the time in all of your work. So you, you know this, your listeners already know this, but I think we all can make a difference. And when we're talking about our own health, I think we can make a huge difference in, by what we select, where we purchase from, and by really seeking out well-raised meat. And there are more and more choices to that. And if you look in your community, you'll probably find a lot more than you even realize is there. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a little bit of extra effort to locate it, but it's there and it's more and more there. And just in the last week, I had two different conversations with two totally different people in different parts of the United States. One was in Maine and one was in Oregon, telling me that during Mm. the pandemic year, um, their sort of local meat supplier of, you know, sort of regenerative type meats uh, grew dramatically in size because there was so much more demand. So I think this is something people are starting to wake up to and think more about, and there's more availability. And so there's more opportunity for all of us to participate in this. I'd like to think so. I Unfortunately, I, I find it that it is still, and I, I'm not knocking the farmer and I'm not saying it isn't worth it, but uh, pasture-raised meats are very expensive 
for the average homeowner, you know, household, uh, buying a $25 three pound chicken is prohibitive. And I don't care how good a cook you are and how skillful you are at, at uh, managing your leftovers. Um, it's just, it's hard. I mean. Well, I, I, I don't like to, I never usually do this. I don't, I don't um, plug specific people's products, but there's a, there's a pasture raised chicken now in, um, in Trader Joe's and it's available, widely available. And I, I know the farm well, and it's, uh, it's about 10 bucks and it's a full chicken and you, you can eat, we eat it all the time. I know the farmer, I know the place, Bill's right. been to their farm and um and it's truly a grass-fed uh uh, animal raised and it's a heritage breed and it's really good food and it makes two to three meals out of it so i find that affordable i think that's affordable that is affordable yeah absolutely but i mean by the way i I really don't believe we should be trying to get uh food as cheap as possible in terms of the you know the the what the farmer receives for that because they're actually bearing the true cost of of their production system understood Yeah, we need to. What we need to do, I think, in this country, is figure out how to make it possible that all people can afford good food. So I think we need to have that conversation. (laughs) You know, whether it's through farm subsidies or it's through the way food stamps or you know other you know SNAP, whatever the different programs are. You know, we need to make sure. For example, those are now you know SNAP can be used at farmers markets. For example, those are the kinds of things that I think will help make good food accessible for all, which I think is absolutely essential. Yeah, me too. And with that, I yeah, that's a perfect ending. Well done, Nicolette. <laughs> <laughs> this has Anytime. been great fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Best of luck with the book. Is there any uh, anything you want to promote shamelessly? You know, I always encourage people to promote themselves shamelessly at the end of the show. Do you have a yeah. website? Are you doing readings? Is there another TV, uh, you know, uh, radio show you're going to do? Let, well, I just people I, learn more? I really encourage people that are interested in this topic to um, follow the social media for Defending Beef. We have a really active Twitter account, a really active Facebook account. They're Great. both just under Defending Beef. And we cover everything from, you know, the sort of, the health and and um, sustainability side and the you know the dietary side rather and then on the ecological side and we put all kinds of good information have great discussions there all the time so that that's a good terrific. resource great idea yeah. thank you so much uh, and thank you to my sponsor and thanks to my engineer uh, this has been what doesn't kill you food industry insights thanks so much for tuning in today people and we'll be back next week with another great show I promise see you then so long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.